Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in the human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 42 of History on Fire. This is going to be the last episode of the John of Arc series, so this is where we wrap things up. Before we go, big thank you to the sweet folks who have decided to support me on Patreon. Uh, particularly shout-outs to Susan Moss O'Donnell, Mauro Gatti, and Rob Edinger, who have willingly donated at the $100 level, very sweet of you guys. But thank you also to everyone else who has been supporting on Patreon. If you absolutely hate ads, there's a quick way to avoid them by supporting at the $5 level on Patreon. And if you do not mind ads, here we go. This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Audible. This is the time of the year when everyone is thinking about gifts. Christmas is coming up. So if you think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership, now is the best time to do it since there's a special offer going on. Audible offers an unbeatable selection of audiobooks from bestsellers, motivational stuff, mysteries, thrillers, you name it. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible originals that you cannot hear anywhere else. You'll also enjoy easy audiobook exchanges, rollover credits, and an audiobook library that you can keep forever, even if you decide to cancel your membership. So right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month, which is more than half of the regular price. So please go to audible.com forward slash H-O-F or simply text HOF to 500-500 to get started. Again, that's audible.com forward slash HOF, or text to HOF to 500-500. If you decide to try Audible, which I think is a wise decision, uh, there's one book that I've been using. I've been using many, many books for this series on John of Arc. One that I particularly enjoyed was by Catherine Harrison, It is available right now on Audible, so that's a great place to get started. This episode is also sponsored by Action Heat. Action Heat makes the world's best heated clothing, powered by rechargeable batteries. This includes heated jackets, socks, gloves, hats, you name it. Action Heat clothing is engineered to safely and efficiently deliver heat, via heating panels, kind of the same way as uh, the heated seat of a car does. Now, you may wonder, I live in LA, what do I know about the cold? Well, not always. I'm currently at the top of a mountain in Big Bear, California, where it's quite cold outside. 
So while everybody else is freezing out there, I am not. I'm toasty and warm thanks to Action Heat. We got a special deal for our listeners to save 15% off your entire order. Go to actionheat.com forward slash history to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. Again, that's actionheat.com forward slash history or you can just use the coupon code history at checkout to save 15%. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skincare, sexual wellness for men. Some crazy statistics I was reading. Some 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35. 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED. These guys at 4 try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way. You don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription. Everything can be done online. They basically sell you the generic version, which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the name brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month, starting today for just $5. So, while supplies last, only $5 for History on Fire listeners. This would cost, needless to say, would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route. So go to 4hims.com forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number 5. Can't beat this deal, so check them out. You guys by now know who else we're sponsored by, since they have been sponsoring us all year long. You have heard it before, History on Fire is sponsored by BlueApron.com And you've heard it before, not just because of repetition, but because of the insane level level of enthusiasm that I've been displaying when I talk about them. Because we eat that three times a week. Three days a week, we got our, you know, we got the delivery once a week, and then we have food lasting for three awesome meals of the week. My only regret is that I don't have more. Maybe I should up my plan and start getting more stuff. In any case... They offer amazing recipes. You can pick how many you want each week, whether two, three, or four. High-quality ingredients, fairly easy to follow um, directions. Usually you can get an amazing meal prepared for really fast. So, what I suggest you do is check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We're also brought to you by letterjoy.co. So that's not .com, it's .co. Letterjoy mails you or someone you love one curated historic letter every week. Uh, They are mailed on either fine cotton or parchment paper using a real stamp. So that's a interesting way to make sure that some of history's most fascinating figures now become your pen pals. You give or receive weekly historic letters from figures like Thomas Jefferson, Florence Nightingale, George Patton, you name it. These guys pick from the world's best libraries and archives to find great letters to tell every story. 
Each letter comes with background information to help you contextualize it, and it's a great way to experience history through the words of those who wrote it. Among some of the recent letters, there are some by Sam Houston and Stephen Austin strategizing on how to beat General Santana of Mexico, one by Justice Samuel Chase trying to plead his innocence during an impeachment trial of a Supreme Court justice, which is a big first in history. Here's a listener exclusive for our guys. If you use the code ONFIRE to get a $5 credit toward your first gift or membership, so again, that's the code on fire to get a $5 credit when you visit letterjoy.co. Again, that's letterjoy.co to get started. Also, big thank you to my regular sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. I just received the big shipments, actually from both of them. Uh, Datsusara, I have a new backpack for my daughter and the gi, which for those of you who don't roll jiu-jitsu in that martial arts uniform for a friend of mine. So I'm getting a bunch of Christmas gifts through Datsusara. If you want to check it out at dsgear.com, they have some amazing products made with hemp. Really beautiful stuff. For Onnit, well, these guys have literally, well, maybe not literally, but they do. I was about to say they literally have 10,000 products. Eh, maybe not literally, but they do have a lot of stuff from workout equipment, supplements, uh, clothing, special foods, lots and lots of great stuff. So check them out at www.onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash history, where you'll receive an automatic discount. Shout out to a new podcast coming out called Mythology. Now, you guys clearly dig stories since you're listening to History on Fire, and this new podcast is going to be all stories about heroes and gods, monsters, events that shape the human history and the human mind. So it's a new thing, so check them out at Mythology, that's M-Y-T-H-O-L-O-G-Y, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And I'm curious to see what you guys think. I haven't had a chance to check it out yet because it's a brand new thing, but I am looking forward to doing so. And also, last but not least, big thank you to NeverTapGear.com. They have released a beautiful rash guard design, but the wonderful Savannah M, who is here helping me with editing, producing and releasing the podcast. And also a big thank you to DynastyForge.com for sending us some awesome swords and a whole assortment of blades. So having said all that, if you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. But now, without further ado, let's go set History on Fire. Here we go with the fourth and last chapter in this uh, Joan of Arc saga. The whole series originally started out as two episodes. That's what I thought it would be. You know, I started researching and I dug up more and more information and they became three. And eventually here we are with four, but I swear it will end here. This will be it. I ended up researching for almost six months for this series. So inevitably that start 
making the original material balloon up until um, it becomes next to impossible to just dedicate only a couple of episodes to it. In any case, down to business. Everything in her life had happened incredibly fast. The last few months of John of Arc's life had been a whirlwind of actions and emotions. Just 15 months earlier, she had been a farm girl knocking on aristocrats' doors, trying to convince them that angels had entrusted her with the task of saving friends. In a quite unlikely turn of events, soon after that she found herself at the court of Charles when he was still a prince and not yet crowned. Against all odds, Charles had believed her and sent her with an army to fight the English. In a matter of a few days, she had led French troops to lift the siege of Orléans in a standing victory. And in the weeks to come, she had fought in many battles, freeing several towns, until she had stood by the king's side as he was officially crowned. But just as quick as she had risen, she began to fall. There had been the failure to take Paris, the loss of favor among the king's advisors, the fruitless campaigns that followed, and a nearly suicidal rush to defend Compiègne from an Anglo-Burgundian siege. And then, well, then there had been that sortie on May 23rd, 1430, when John had personally stood at the rear of the French forces to protect the retreat, only to find herself locked out of the town, when the people she was fighting for had closed the gates of the town, leaving her to be pulled off her horse and captured by the Burgundians. The angelic voices that she kept claiming to hear on a regular basis had warned her. Her capture would come. It was inevitable. And now that time had arrived. Freedom was soon going to become a memory as John became a prisoner of war of the Burgundian forces just outside Compiègne. The soldier who had captured her was serving under Jean II of Luxembourg, a liege of the Duke of Burgundy. And so it was in the custody of Jean of Luxembourg that she would spend the next few months. This guy, in fact, understood that he had in his sense a lottery ticket. John was worth a lot of money, so he mulled over his next move very carefully while holding on to her as prisoner in a castle in northern France. His job was made a bit more difficult by the ladies in his life. From his wife to his aunt and a whole bunch of others, they all fell under John's spell. Spending time with her in the castle made them all, well, if not straight-up believers in her cause, at least sympathetic. They, they definitely liked her. They felt that she was sincere. So either because he was pressured by his female kin or because he was milking the decision in order to get a better price or maybe because he genuinely didn't know what to do, Jeanne took his sweet time trying to figure out how to play his hand. According to some testimonies, he was willing to accept ransoming her by selling her to her allies if she agreed to stop fighting the Burgundians. The same sources suggest that she refused, which, if true, was the kind of brave 
borderline insane choice that we would expect from John of Arc. Speaking of brave and borderline insane, as the weeks turned to months, John of Arc began to hear rumors that made her spring into action. In order to escape from the tower where she was kept prisoner, John would have needed wings. Her window stood 21 meters high, which for the metrically challenge among you guys, that's about 70 feet. So she could see her freedom right there, teasing her, just outside the window. But of course, the laws of gravity stood in the way. The saints that John claimed appeared to her regularly to talk to her also gave her a sounding no to her plan to escape. But, you know, having more guts than sense, she decided to challenge both the saints and the laws of gravity. What John did was she opened the window and she jumped. As miraculous as John's career had been up until that moment, she found out that the laws of gravity still applied to her. She fell for 70 feet with nothing to break her fall underneath. She landed in a dry moat, you know, the dry moat surrounding the castle. You know, lucky for her, the earth was a bit softer than most other soils. But still, that's still a 70 feet fall straight onto the ground, so she was extremely lucky to have survived somehow. Even though she had cheated the Grim Reaper for the time being, John's escape plans were further frustrated by her losing consciousness the second she landed. Her experience of freedom lasted no more than a few minutes, and most of them she spent unconscious, so she didn't even get to experience them. Her captors found her passed out and unable to move, and yet all in one piece. So freedom was not to be hers after all. They brought her back into the castle, where days went by before she recovered enough to move her body. When she was later asked why she had done something so foolish, something that clearly could have killed her, John replied, I've heard that all the people of Compiègne, beyond the age of seven, would be subjected to fire and sword, and I prefer to die rather than to live after such a destruction of good people. And that was one of the reasons why I jump." and the other was that I knew that I'd been sold to the English, and I would have preferred to die rather than be in the hands of the English, my enemies. After I fell from the tower, I was for two or three days without desire to eat, and I was so wounded in that jump that I could neither eat nor drink. But nevertheless, I had comfort from St. Catherine, who told me to confess myself and ask pardon from God for having jump, and that without fail the people of Compiègne would have help before the feast of St. Martin in the winter. And so I began to return to health. I began to eat, and soon I was healed. Incidentally, things at Compiègne eventually turned out exactly as predicted, with the French army being able to lift the siege. In another occasion when John discussed their jump, she said, I did not do it out of despair, but in the hope of saving my body and of going to assist many good men who were in need. After the jump, I went to confession and asked pardon of the Lord. What John means here is that by jumping, 
she had disobeyed any explicit request by the very voices that had been guiding her all along. John, however, was convinced that despite being upset with her, the angels counseling her had stepped in and saved her. As she put it, I begged her pardon afterwards. I admitted I was wrong in jumping, and my angels forgave me. They saw my need, and that I could in no way hold myself back. So they lent aid to my life and prevented me from being killed. When she was asked afterwards, was any penance imposed on you because of that? Meaning, did the angels ask you to make some kind of penance because of your disobedience? John replied, I bore part of the penance in the damage I did myself by falling. The fact that the most important prisoner he had ever held in his hands decided to experiment with human flight from one of his towers could not have pleased Jeanne of Luxembourg. What could have happened had John, had John succeeded in escaping? What, had, what if she had killed herself trying? In either scenario, the fortune that he would make by selling her to the highest bidder would vanish before he would collect it. He clearly couldn't afford that kind of risk. So as a result, he moved her to a more secure location and decided he needed to hurry up deciding what to do with her. His decision was made simpler by a couple of factors. His aunt, who had clearly developed some sympathy for John and had pleaded with him, not to sell her to the English. She died of natural causes. She had been a very powerful woman, not the kind of woman that Jeanne of Luxembourg was willing to defy as long as she was alive. But in death, well, that's a whole different story. She was dead and there was death. So, Jeanne of Luxembourg no longer felt bound by her wishes now that she was no longer breathing. Perhaps he could have still found a way to honor his son's desires without having to sacrifice a handsome profit by selling her to King Charles. But as surprising as this may sound, there is no evidence to suggest Charles had made any effort to ransom her. Almost six centuries later, we can only guess as to why that was the case. I mean, John of Arc had clearly defied his will more than once so maybe he didn't mind being rid of her. After all, she had already served her purpose, and most of his current advisors saw her as a problem because of her insistence on war. She could potentially disrupt their, their diplomatic negotiations, so there was no point spending precious treasure to rescue someone who could turn into a liability. But that's just a guess, okay? Because of course we have no idea, you know. However we spin it, the fact remains that the French king abandoned her to her destiny, despite the fact that she was the one who had delivered him the crown. Is it possible that maybe he didn't bother making an offer because he knew that he would be turned down? Sure, it's po anything is possible, you know. We can't get into the guy's head. We don't know why he didn't do it. But regardless... Oddly enough, despite Charles not trying to ransom her, not once did John feel betrayed or change her mind about him. 
I'm really not sure what to make of it, since it seems pretty clear to me that Charles had used her for his own needs, and then never lifted a finger to help her when she needed it. The fact that she never complained once about it is more than a bit puzzling to me. In any case, with Charles not even bothering to make a token offer to rescue her, the choice for Jeanne of Luxembourg was pretty clear. The English were ready to pay insane amounts of money to buy her from him. And on top of it, the English were his allies in the war. Yeah, it's true that his aunt had not wanted to see John sold to the English. But she wouldn't, since she was dead. And when weighed on a scale, being over-sentimental about his dead aunt's wishes didn't quite measure up to the sizable gold the English were ready to put on the plate. So in light of this, in November 1430, Jeanne of Luxembourg sold John to the English for 10,000 crowns. Considering how much damage she had done to the English in the past year and a half, you can safely bet that what they had in store for her was not a warm reception with red carpet and flowers. When the English had first heard of her, things were looking bright, and the odds of them soon becoming the undisputed masters of France were quite excellent. But then she had stepped onto the scene and the tides had magically turned. She had been at the head of the French army, crushing the English time and time again. Thousands of English soldiers had died. Plenty of English-controlled towns were lost. She caused the English incalculable pain. But now she was finally in their hands, and they weren't about to let her go anytime soon. By Christmas time, 1430, they had her right where they wanted her. In Rouen, the capital of English-held Normandy, and the headquarters of the English government. Joan of Arc was truly in the walls then, when she had found out that she was to be sold to the English. She had begged her voices to help her die quickly. But the reply she received was that it wasn't going to happen like that. The man who was soon to have a say in John's destiny, and who had actively negotiated between the English and Jeanne of Luxembourg, was a bishop named Pierre Cochon. This guy is going to show up in our narrative a lot in this episode, so you may want to keep that name in mind. For quite a few years now, he had been a partisan of both the English and the Burgundians. Just recently, he had had to flee his position when John's supporters invaded the area where he was living, so he was not exactly neutral in his, uh, in his feelings about her. He hated her guts, and he knew exactly what the English expected of him when they put her in his hands. They wanted Cochon to in- indict her on religious crimes. Blasphemy is always a good one to start with, so that the- he would found her guilty and deny the very religious claims that had given her this special aura among the masses in France. If the church, in the person of Bishop Cochon and other carefully selected priests, could deny that she was sent by God, if, uh, if they could prove that she was actually a witch 
in league with the devil. Then not only they could burn her at the stake, which would please them to no end, but they could also use her conviction to make an argument that Charles had claimed the throne thanks to a witch. The English had, yes, the English had lost to a woman, but if they could say that she was a witch with dark powers, their losses could be justified. So in trying to convince the French population to accept a foreign king, the English clearly had a tall task on their hands. But maybe, maybe, the trial results could help them in their propaganda campaign. Yes, they could tell, our king wasn't born in France, but at least he's not a devil worshipper like that other guy. Do you really want someone as your king who gained his powers thanks to a witch? So right off the bat, the trial was a farce. Cachon and the English who financed the trial would try their hardest to cover with a veneer of legitimacy, something that obviously wasn't. The goal of the whole thing was not to serve justice. It was to find her guilty, regardless of the evidence, and make it look like Charles had trusted an evil witch to put him in a bad light. So the trial really was not going to be... It was nothing but a weapon in a propaganda war. In order to even initiate the trial, John's enemies had to set some legal technicalities aside. During the first few weeks of 1431, Cochon sent a notary to collect evidence against John so that they could formally charge her with something. You know, they didn't know what they wanted to charge her with yet. So they needed to dig for some evidence in order to come up with some accusation, you know, something they could charge her with. The problem was that, after interrogating people who knew her, the notary couldn't find anything that would hold up to even a generous definition of admissible evidence. So Cochon would have to violate all precedents by starting a trial without the proper evidence to charge her. What he would do instead was to start a trial anyway in the hope that John could be pushed into saying something that could be turned into evidence. This is the kind of legal travesty that in many ways reminds me of the trial of Jack Johnson that we discuss in the series dedicated to him. If you haven't listened, by the way, you are missing out. That was an epic series, I believe three-part series, if I recall correctly. So go check that one out. In any case, being apparently a strong believer in the notion that once you break the law a little, you might as well go all the way, Cochon also denied John a right to a legal advisor and handpicked the jury and judges exclusively among clerics who were partisans of the English. So not exactly a jury that even knew what impartiality was. Cochon made it clear he would let nothing stand in the way of his desired outcome. In the meantime, John was held in a prison cell, shackled to her bed, and with five guards watching her at all times. She at one point said that one of the guards had tried to rape her, and uh, so she had asked to be placed in a church under the custody of women. Her request was ignored. They just replaced the guards. That was it. Technical, all of this again was illegal, since according to protocol, she was supposed to be under uh, 
she was supposed to be watched by nuns in a religious establishment. But as we have seen, Cauchon was not a big fan of, of legal technicalities. Just to get things started on a weird note, Anne of Burgundy, the daughter of John the Fearless and the wife of the Duke of Bedford, was asked to perform a virginity test on John. So yet again, John had strangers stare between her legs and throw around her crotch to check on whether she was a virgin or not. Her poor crotch was surely seen a lot of action, albeit without any satisfaction. Anne of Burgundy could have just lied. And, you know, she could have said that she found her to be not a virgin, and this would have made Cochon's job of discrediting her so much easier, since on her virginity rested a big part of her public identity. But Anne was apparently too honest to rig the game, so she came back with the word that John was indeed as much a virgin as advertised. Despite his rough start, and despite the bad news that his notary in his investigation couldn't dig up any incriminating dirt on John, Cochon got the trial underway in February 1431. That's when John was brought into the court to have a face-to-face with Cochon and his minions. And apparently he needed lots of minions. On Cochon's side, in fact, were about 70 clerics, including a cardinal, six bishops, 32 doctors of theology, 16 bachelors of theology, and seven medical doctors. On John's side was, well, no one. It was just 19-year-old, illiterate John against 70 men who had spent their lives studying theology. And so things got underway with the 70 of them taking turns firing off one question after another in an effort to get her to trip on her words and say something incriminating. Interrogations would often last up to 11 hours a day, something that prompted the judges to complain of how tiring it was for them. can only imagine what how brutal this was for John, who had no breaks, whose life was on the line, and she was the one being interrogated. You know, if any of the judges got tired, they could just take a break from that battle of wits. She had no breaks. It's kind of like a fight where the opponents are part of a giant tag team, but you have to remain in no matter what, with no one to step in for you. At night, the judges would go back to their comfortable lodging and good food. She went back to a dark cell, wearing chains, and under the constant threat of possible rape by the guards. Despite all these, John was amazing during the trial. As author Catherine Harrison writes, that neither John's spirit nor her mental acuity flagged as she resisted the combined force of dozens of opponents who protested they were being overburned by what was, for nearly all of them, the passive role of sitting in judgment, attests to her unnatural fortitude even more powerfully than their stance on the battlefield. And in another passage, Harrison also writes that John demonstrated, I quote, at 19, an integrity that a chorus of scheming pedants couldn't dismantle, 
their sophistry displaying John's virtues as she could have not done for herself. As usual, John's attributed their resilience in these dire circumstances to the saints appearing to her. As she said, I would be dead were it not for the voice that comforts me every day. So right from the start, John made it clear she was not intimidated and was not going to bow down to Cochon's authority. When she was asked if she would swear to answer all questions by telling the truth, John replied she would, but only in regard to the question she would choose to answer. In other words, she would reserve for herself the right not to answer some questions. She said certain issues had nothing to do with the business at hand, or they were simply between her and God, so she would simply decline to answer if they pressed her about them. She was equally defiant in her, han- in her answers when her interrogators questioned her about her attempted escape when she jumped from the tower, when they asked her to swear that she wouldn't try to escape again. Well, when they did that, John replied, it is true that I wished and still wish to escape, as is lawful for any captive or prisoner. Can you imagine staring at your jailers and saying this to their faces? It reminds me of a friend of mine, Jim Weddell from the Yankton tribe. Jim had an uncanny talent for breaking out of jail. He did that on multiple occasions even breaking out of South Dakota State Penitentiary once in what newspapers dubbed South Dakota's Great Escape. After he was recaptured when the warden asked him to give his word that he would not try to escape again, Jim replied almost exactly as John had done, and told the warden that it was the duty of a warrior to escape from the enemy and return to his people. Needless to say, that did not endear him a lot to prison authorities, and similarly, I can imagine that John's response didn't do wonders to make Cochon see her in a more positive light. He and his cronies were already salivating at the prospect of finding an excuse to burn her alive. Answer like that only made them feel the barbecuing of John couldn't start soon enough. If we're going to be perfectly honest, not all of the 70 men in the room were equally comfortable with making a mockery of justice. When some of the people in charge of judging and trying John voiced objections to Cochon's methods, they were dismissed immediately. One of them actually had the guts to suggest Cochon had no right to try John, since the Archbishop of Rennes had already examined her and had found no fault with her, and technically the Archbishop was Cochon's superior. I can picture the embarrassed coughing that must have filled the room when these guys voiced this challenge. I can also picture Cochon doing his best Darth Vader impersonation and saying with a raspy voice, I find your lack of faith disturbing. But rather than choking his petulant challenger from across the room using the mystical powers of the Force, Cushon more prosaically had him thrown in jail and threatened with wars. 
which, if you ask me, makes him a really unimaginative and ultimately uncool comic book villain. But as unimaginative and uncool Cochon's style was, it was also effective since it sent a clear message to anyone else who even thought of not falling in line. And so day after day, her seventh interrogators pepper John with a zillion questions designed to make her trip into saying something contradictory or heretical, which could be used to justify a conviction. At one point, seen right through their tactic, John replied, That has nothing to do with your trial. Do you want me to speak against myself? Now, one thing that's cool about this whole story is that we have the actual records of the trial, so we can see the way John brilliantly avoided all of their traps. For example, at one point they tried to trap her into saying she knew she was in God's grace, which would be blasphemous since no one could say with certainty whether they were or were not. So when they asked her if she said yes, she would be guilty of blasphemy, and if she said no, it would also be problematic because it would be assuming she knew God's mind either way. So basically they set up a situation in which either answer would lead to her condemning herself. But John waltzed right over the trap as she replied, If I am not, may God put me there. And if I am, may God so keep me. I should be the saddest creature in the world if I knew I were not in his grace. So what followed this answer was probably the sound of 70 jaws hitting the floor simultaneously. John had outplayed them all. Some scholars have suggested that John had simply quoted a popular prayer, but this is unlikely, since all reports are that the clerics were blown away by her answer, and that would have hardly been the case had John simply repeated a well-known prayer. Probably more correctly, other scholars suggest that, if anything, John's answer may have predated the prayer and inspired it. So by now, Cochon's blood pressure was likely rising. He was clearly frustrated by her ability to verbally outmaneuver him. You know, Cochon had hoped to use the trial to embarrass and crush an appetite teenager. Instead, he wasn't able to get the evidence he needed to convict her, and he kept getting humiliated by her wit and obvious conviction. A Dominican named Jean Le Sauvage later said he had, I quote, never seen a girl of that age wreck such havoc with her examiners. So at the end of each day, Cachon and his minions spent hours examining every answer and crafting a strategy to get to her the next day. When they eventually asked for help from an expert in clerical law named Jean Loyer, things backfired. He said the trial was irregular because it was supposed to be conducted in ecclesiastical chambers. No one had told John what the charges against her were. She was jailed in a military prison under pressure from the guards, and she had no counsel to help her. And to add the final nail in the coffin, he added that he wanted nothing to do with this legal farce. Despite this, undeterred, 
Koshon pressed on. Since the trial wasn't going well, Koshon's decided to move it from a public place to John's cell and have less people sitting in judgment, so only those ultra-loyal to him would be there. Something that Koshon began to pursue was the notion that John's crime was similar to Jan Hus, a Czech theologian who had been condemned as a heretic, and he's someone who discussed in part three of this series. A key crime committed by John in Cachon's eyes was that in claiming to have direct revelations from God, she was bypassing church hierarchy and undermining the very basics of authority of the church. As author Mary Gordon writes, every word out of John's mouth at her trial reinforced the cleric's suspicions. They could hardly have invented speech that could more clearly have indicated their insistence on the primary of her own vision over the authority of the church. And in another passage, Mary Gordon goes on, considering her devoutness, her lack of concern about defying the power of the church is astonishing. So the judges were adamant about making clear that this attitude would not be tolerated. They told her in no uncertain terms that they represented the church, which was, I quote, incapable of error or false judgment. In other words, they are always right. We are the church and the church is always right. Hence, we are always right. And they were mad that she trusted her private line of communication with God more than their authority. They were mad about her belief that she was above their judgment and she had a closer channel to God than they did. They told her that it was criminal for her to refuse to submit to church authorities, meaning them, and insist on claiming a direct relationship with God's angels. In many ways, this was the classic clash between dogma against experience. Institutions and mystics rarely get along. Institutions like mystics only if they are long dead and thereby safe. Direct personal experience of the divine, you know, of the kind John claimed to have, was an existential threat to the bureaucratic monopoly that the church claimed. Author Timothy Wilson Smith writes, The fundamental point at issue, however, was her willingness to trust her voices rather than what her judges told her she should believe. At the trial, they told her, again I quote, You have believed these apparitions lightly, instead of turning to God in devout prayer to give you certainty. And you have not consulted prelates or learned clerics to enlighten you, though. Because of your status and the simplicity of your knowledge, you should have done so. Take this example. Suppose our king had appointed you to defend the fortress, forbidding you to let anyone enter. Would you not refuse to admit anyone who claimed to come in his name but brought no letters or authentic sign? So too, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he ascended into heaven, committed the government of his church to the apostle St. Peter and his successors, 
forbidding them to receive in future those who claim to come in his name, but brought no other sign than their own words. So you should not have put faith in those which you say came to you, nor should we believe you, as God commands the opposite. Which is a really long-winded way of saying, we are the only ones who have a private line to God. We are the only ones to whom God speaks. There is no divine revelation, unless we say there is. Philosophically, people like these always sound the same. Whether we are talking about Jesus' crucifixion or Socrates being sentenced to take a shot of poison, it's always sober guys representing the status quo who are the ones who vote to crack down on those daring to carve a path away from tradition. John's reply to this was simple and to the point. She said, I've done nothing except at God's command, and I've told you this often enough. And in another occasion she told them, If you were well informed about me, you would wish me to be out of your hands. I've done nothing except by revelation. When she was asked, Why you rather than another? meaning why would God choose you? Her reply was, It pleased God to do so through a simple maiden to humble the king's enemies. Obviously, when reading her words, it's hard not to be impressed with how utterly fearless she was. Here were a bunch of learned theologians just looking for an excuse to burn her. And in the face of their scolding and threats, John stared them down and said, I have greater fear of failing my voices in saying something that displeases them than I have of answering you. In some cases, she even zeroed in on Cochon's directly. When Cochon's asked her about what she claimed St. Michael had told her, John taunted him by saying, He's told me some things about you but I'm not going to tell you right now. And in another exchange, she said, you say that you are my judge. Take care of what you are doing, for in truth, I've been sent by God and you put yourself in great danger. Someone else may have tried to appear as a lost and confused teenage peasant who needed the guidance and the forgiveness of the judges. That someone clearly wasn't John. Despite this, John wasn't delusional about her chances. She understood that the deck was stacked against her. She clearly was not sure that she would be able to avoid execution. She said, St. Catherine told me that I would have help, and I do not know if this will be deliverance from prison or deliverance when I face judgment which basically means I don't know if I'll be able to avoid execution or I will be admitted to heaven once I'm dead and, you know, I'll I'll have help after I'm dead, basically. At times, her voices were more ominous. She said, they said, take everything serenely. Do not shrink from your martyrdom. From that, you will come finally to the kingdom of paradise. 
and my voices say that simply and absolutely without fail. I call this a martyrdom because of the pain and hardship that I suffer in my imprisonment. I do not know if I will have to suffer worse. But I defer in this, as in everything, to our Lord. Things weren't getting better for Cochon. Now John was even making fun of him. And he still didn't have enough for a clear-cut conviction. So desperate to find something, anything, he began to pursue a different line of inquiry. Is it God who commanded you to wear men's clothes? He asked. John replied, The clothes are a small matter, the last of all things, and I did not take up men's clothes on the advice of this word. I neither put on these clothes, nor I did do anything, except by the commandment of God and his angels. Keep in mind this business of wearing male clothing, because it's going to turn out to be rather important. In early April, Bishop Cochon sent to John a much better food than she had had in a while, in the form of a fish. She ate it, and she promptly got horrendously sick. Things got so bad that she asked for confession and last rites, because even her guards thought she may die. Drawing the seemingly obvious conclusion, some people suggest she may have been poisoned, but others argue it was just a case of bad fish, not intentionally poisoned, and that Cochon had nothing to do with it. Regardless of which one you choose to believe about it, John eventually overcame whatever was making her sick and was back on her feet. Cochon was still worried. His English masters didn't want her to die in jail. They wanted her convicted so she could be executed. So upon finding out that she, hasn't, she hadn't died of food poisoning, Cochon figured that the proper next step would be to torture her, to get her to confess. Since he didn't want to come across as a bossy dictator and wanted to keep at least some vague semblance of legality about the proceedings, he asked the other judges to vote to determine if they should torture. One of the judges said, yeah, sure, some nice torture would be good for the health of her soul. Now, I think I must have missed some important day in school because where I come from, torture is not exactly synonymous with health of the soul, but, you know, maybe that's just me. Or maybe it's not just me, since most of the judges actually voted against this idea. But just to at least intimidate her, on May 9, she was brought to the dungeon of the castle so that they could show her the torture chamber and all the instruments. You know, nice field trip to the torture chamber often does wonders for a prisoner's willingness to tell investigators what they want to hear. The Inquisition at this point in history had many horrific tools to torture people. If you want a window into the horror that a self-righteous mind can create, take a look at the many museum exhibits that they regularly have about the instruments of torture used by the church through the centuries. That right there was some sadistic totalitarian monstrosity justified in the name of God. 
One of the techniques favored by the church was the use of the rack to pull bones out of joints. If you ever dislocated a bone, you know how horrible the pain is. And in the case of the rack, the noises of joints being broken apart were just as bad as the pain itself. Among some of the other popular items on the menu were pincers to pull out fingernails and toenails and hot coals to burn the flesh. Upon seeing the instruments of torture, which the not-so-subtle subtext was that take a look at the stuff that we'll use to break your body apart, John looked at Cachon and told him, In truth, if you were to have me torn limb from limb and my soul separated from my body, I still won't tell you anything more. And if I did tell you anything else about this, afterwards, I would always say that you had made me say it by force. And she reinforced this same concept during the trial by saying, Tear me limb from limb. I would rather have you cut my throat than tell you all I know. Now, let's rewind it for a second. This is a 19-year-old young woman, illiterate peasant who fell prisoner to people who hate her and have spent all day every day for months interrogating her. And now they've just given her a welcome tour to the torture chambers. The overwhelming majority of human beings would crack under these circumstances. John apparently was wired very differently. One of the torturers present during her visit to the dungeon would later say that, despite the ultra-intimidating situation, I quote, she replied with so much wisdom that everyone present was astonished. In the end, my colleague and I retired without touching her. A little while later, a group of English and Burgundian aristocrats visited her in her cell. One of them taunted her, her, promising he would have her freed. And John replied, In God's name, you're mocking me. I know well you have neither the wish nor the power to do so. I know very well that the English will have me killed, believing that after my death they will win the kingdom of France. But she promptly also added that, regardless of her death, the English would never be able to conquer France. Upon hearing this, one of the English aristocrats got so mad that he pulled out a dagger trying to kill her right then and there, but was restrained by some of the others. With next to no progress made toward convicting her, despite weeks of interrogations and threats of torture, Cochon returned to the issue of John's wearing male clothing. As author Regine Pernou writes about this choice of clothing, it was the physical manifestation the announcement of her refusal to abide by patriarchal strictures, a defiance that was absolute and uncompromising, and both John and their judges know that. Certainly what we can say is that um, the clerics considered the choice dangerous and rebellious. They could find comfort in Deuteronomy 22.5 that said, a woman 
must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. So, based on this passage, John's choice could be construed as explicitly going against the Bible. With only this very tenuous throw of uh, rationalization to grasp onto, on May 24th, Cashon had John taken out of her cell and brought to a place where she was told she would be executed on the spot and burned to death unless she signed a confession of being guilty of heresy. Cashon's sabotage traps had all failed, so he figured he would bring out the big guns. By this point, John had reached the end of her physical and emotional energy. Faced with death by burning and with the promise that she would be removed from English custody and placed in the custody of nuns if she signed, John broke down and signed a document stating she would no longer dress as a man, cut her hair short, or bear arms. The document she had signed was actually different from the document Cochon would submit in the official record. The one submitted by Cochon included something about John's confessing to have falsely pretended to have revelations from the angels, which is something that she would have never admitted to. And there's also something strange about her signing. By this point in her life, she had learned to sign her own name. But instead of doing that, she drew a circle on the documents and added an X. At an earlier date, John had signed with an X some letters that were designed to mislead the enemy. The reason why she had done it was so that her men would know that the information was false. But Cachance wasn't going to fuss about these technicalities. He was happy enough with an X, and uh, you know he had his minions give John a female, a female dress. His job, however, was only half done, because according to church law, you could not burn a heretic who confessed. You're supposed to rehabilitate such a person. You could only burn a relapsed heretic. So far, Koshana bullied John into confessing to heresy, but in order to burn her, he would need for her to fall right back into the same heresy. And let's remember that this was exactly what this whole charade was all about. The English had already decided that she needed to be burned as a witch. Cochon's job was to figure out a semi-plausible excuse to do it. In some ways, sorry for going in a minor tangent, but in some way this is the part of this story that I find the grossest. These guys lack the dignity to say she's our enemy and she has schooled us multiple times. And since we don't appreciate being made to look like fools by a teenager, now that you are in our hands, we'll kill you. There will be some honesty in that. But they are too cowardly to actually tell it like it is. Instead, what they did was to desperately try to find some kind of theological justification. And when they couldn't do that, then they figured they would just make it up. It would have been manlier to kill her the way the Mohawk of North America did with their enemies. If you're not familiar with their customs, the Mohawk, much like the rest of the Iroquois Confederacy as well as other tribes in the Northeast, were among the most brutal in terms of the way they treated their captured enemies. Their approach was simple and to the point. 
You're my enemy. I caught you. Now I burn you. Nothing complicated about it. This clearly didn't make them pleasant neighbors or particularly fun people in that regard, but at least there were no pretenses. You know, just be an honest barbarian who sets his enemies on fire without feeling the need to hide and use God as a justification. But that would not do for civilized people. They had to make up this complicated legal proceeding, falsify evidence, frame their enemy, cast them as the enemy of God, and only then you can burn them to death. Because that's the civilized way. As it turns out, it wouldn't take long for the civilized way to work itself out. Within just a few days from John's accepting to wear female clothing and supposedly signing the confession, on May 28, she was back to wearing male clothing. There are two versions to explain the sequence of events that cause her to return to male clothing. The first one is reported by her confessor, who told that John revealed to him that either a guard or an English lord had tried to rape her, and so she returned to wearing men's clothing, since they were harder to remove during an attempted rape. The other version, reported by the usher of the court, holds that the guards stole from her the female clothes, leaving her with no choice but to either stand naked or start wearing again men's clothing. Obviously, I don't know which of these versions, if any of them, is the correct one. But what is clear is that something shady was going on. Consider this. If indeed a woman wearing male clothing was such a biblical abomination, why would you even leave male clothing in John's cell? Looks like a pretty clear-cut case of entrapment. And the entrapment went deeper than just casually leaving male clothes in her cell. If you recall, John had confessed after she had was promised that she would be put in custody of nuns rather than Anglo-Burgundian secular guards. She had also been guaranteed that she would be allowed to attend Mass and would no longer be kept in chains. But right after her confession, Koshan had refused to honor his promise and he put her right back into the same cell. So when John put the male clothes again, she said she would have not done it and would have stuck with female clothing as she'd been guarded by women. And she also added, I took to it again because it was more lawful and convenient than to have women's clothes because I am with men. I began to wear them again because what was promised to me was not observed. And in another passage he stated, If he had only put me in the church court's prisons and entrusted me to decent and proper ecclesiastical wardens, this would have never happened. Therefore, I appeal against you to God. And just to remove any doubts that entrapment was the name of the game, after John returned to wearing male clothes, Cushon was seen walking out of her cell all happy and saying, we got her, we have got her, thereby proving that he had been prejudiced against her the whole time and that the entire trial had been a giant ploy 
to quote-unquote gather. As author Timothy Wilson-Smith puts it, there had been unjust ecclesiastical trials before, but John's was one of the most unjust trials ever undertaken in any ecclesiastical court. John understood what going back to male clothing would do. She knew she was living on borrowed time, but it no longer mattered to her. Her words offer as a window in the inner turmoil she had faced after she had confessed out of fear a few days earlier. She said the saints had appeared to her and were upset. In her own words, they told me I damned myself to save my life, for I am sent from God. And my voice told me I did a great evil in declaring that what I had done was wrong. It was only for fear of the fire that I said what I did. They told me I had saved my body to spite my soul. After making peace with the voices, Joan now told the judges she had only confessed out of fear of being burned alive, but now she would only speak the truth. She would rather die than betray her voices. And if... If she was indeed ready to die, well, in that case, Cochon was only too happy to pass the sentence. You are a relapsed heretic, he told her, and by this sentence, which we deliver in writing and pronounce from this tribunal, we denounce you as a rotten member, which, so that you shall not infect other members of Christ, must be cast out of the unity of the Church, cut off from the body, and given over to the secular power. We cast you off, separate, and abandon you. This is the kind of sentence that was usually used as justification by the Inquisition, and it came with the appropriate biblical reference. In John 15.5, Jesus is quoted as saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now, this idea of casting aside branches gathering them up and throwing them into a fire and burning them. Did Jesus mean that metaphorically? Well, the Inquisition and people like Ashon definitely didn't think so. According to them, burning heretics was just what the doctor ordered, or, in this case, what Jesus ordered. And so on May 30th, everything was prepared to set John on fire. 10,000 people gathered in a square in Rouen to see her burn. A placard set before the woodstock read, Joan, whether self-named the maid, liar, pernicious person, abuser of people, soothsayer, superstitious woman, blasphemer of God, presumptuous, unbeliever in the fate of Jesus Christ, 
booster, idolater. I think that's how you pronounce it. I have no idea how you pronounce the word, but you know, well, by now you are used to my weird pronunciations. Cruel, dissolute, invoker of devils, apostate, schismatic and heretic. That's quite a list. And on the way to the execution, she had to wear a cap with written on top of it, heretic, apostate, relapse, idolater, or idolater, something like that. What often happened with people sentenced to be burned at the stake was that the executioner, as a form of mercy killing, the executioner would throw a rope around their necks and strangle them before the flames got to them. Consider it a form of gallows courtesy. We won't let you suffer too much by having you burned. We'll strangle you to death and we'll just burn your corpse. Because we are no savages, you know? We're good, civilized people. But the English hatred for John ran deep. So the platform where she would be tied was built much too high for the executioner to throw a rope. He wasn't able to reach her. So there would be no strangling for her. The best she could hope for was that smoke inhalation would kill her before the flames reached her. But that was a 50-50 proposition at best. And as she was led to the scaffold, she said, Oh, Rowan, I'm much afraid that you may suffer for my death. In other words, she was worrying about the payback that God may visit upon the town for the role they played in having her killed. Which in many ways it echoes the words, uh, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Which according to the Gospels, Jesus said while he was crucified. Not all the English and the Burgundians were equally hateful to order. When John prayed right before execution, it was obvious how sincere she was, so much so that many of the spectators cried. An Englishman made a little cross with some wood and gave it to her, and she really appreciated the act of kindness. She kissed the cross and put, her in, and put the cross in, in her clothes. Similarly, someone had brought a crucifix from the church to the execution and held it high so that she could focus on it while being executed. And then the fire was finally lit, and uh, as Joan was dying, she called on Jesus and the saints. Her last word was actually Jesus. And then it was all over. The young woman who had changed history in the unlikeliest way possible was no more. In the space of a couple of years, she had achieved seemingly impossible things. But now, all that was left of her was a badly charred body, and soon even that would be gone. After she died, and her clothes had burned off, the executioner let the spectators look at her naked, burned body, so they could confirm she had indeed been a woman, and that she was now quite dead. Once these things were established beyond doubt, she was born again in order to turn her whole body to ashes so that her supporters couldn't use any part of her body as a relic. Some people 
some people in the audience were more emotionally shook up than they had anticipated. The notary, Guillaume Manchon, who recorded much of the trial, said, I never weep for much of anything that comes my way, but for a month thereafter, I was not able to find any peace. And after this time, he would spend much time praying for John's soul. Another guy, brother Isambard, who had been among the friendliest to John during her trial, to the point that the Earl of Warwick had threatened to have him thrown into the river if he kept trying to help her. He would later tell, immediately after the execution, the executioner came to me and my companion, brother Martin Ladvenu. According to his unbarred, the executioner was, I quote, quite desperate and afraid he would never receive God's pardon. And the executioner said and affirmed that, in spite of the oil, the sulfur, and the charcoal, which he had applied to the entrails and heart of St. John, in no way could he burn them up, nor reduce to ashes, either the entrails or the heart, which he found amazing, like an obvious miracle. Now, make what you will of that quote. Did that actually happen? Is that a later embellishment? Of course, we can't know for sure, but it looks like he may be made up, particularly when you consider that these tales grew with the telling. For example, in one of the versions that clearly crossed the line, when a soldier tried to cut up John's unburned heart open, a white dove emerged and flew away. So yeah, okay, that's stretching credulity just a tad. Clearly not everyone was moved by the way John had faced death. Mad that John had not denied her voices in the end, Cochon got a few of his minions to lie and swear she had admitted that her voices were evil spirits who had tricked her. Later, there were testimonies by people who were there. They make it abundantly clear that the story was shamelessly made up by Cochon. She had not denied anything as she was about to die. None of that happened. Save for the brief time when she signed a confession before and after John had lived and died by her voices. Among those who, like Cochon, cheered the news of John's death was King Henry, who said that she was burned, I quote, for the benefit of the faith and the extirpation of pestilent terror. Similarly, in a letter written in June 1432 by the English leaders in Rouen to the, I quote their address, to the prelates of the church, to the dukes, counts, and other nobles, and to the cities of his kingdoms of France, it was said, and again I quote from their letter, it is commonly reported everywhere how the woman who had called herself Jeanne la Pucelle, a false prophetess, had for more than two years against divine law and the estate of her sex, dressed in men's clothes, a thing abominable to God, and in that state journeyed to our chief enemy, whom, with others of his party, 
clergy, nobles and commoners. She often contended that she was sent from God and presumptuously boasted that she often had personal and visible communication with St. Michael and a great host of angels and saints of paradise, as well as with St. Catherine and St. Margaret. And she greatly scandalized almost all of Christianity. Not wanting to believe Joan was dead, plenty of people, both immediately after her death and even in modern times, have flocked to all sorts of conspiracy theories, arguing that Joan had escaped the fire and that a substitute was burned in her place. Which is great and all, except there is zero evidence to back this up, other than people's desire to believe in this. After her death, and perhaps praying on this popular wish for Joan's unlikely survival, lots of impersonators claiming to be John showed up all over France, probably trying to milk money and attention. One of them actually managed to get quite a few people convinced she was the real deal. To start with, she looked very much like her. And to make things more interesting, some of John's own siblings actually backed up her story. So we have a legitimate candidate, right? Well, problem is... This John drank plenty, danced with men, and did other things that were 180 degrees away from the way John used to behave. The deception went far enough and gained enough public attention that, at least according to one source, King Charles decided to test this lady and ask what was the secret he had confided when they first met. And this is where the whole charade came tumbling down as the lady confessed she made it up. So it seems likely that some of John's siblings helped pass an imposter for the real John, probably just for money. Speaking of John of Arc conspiracy theories, one held that John was a high-born lady, the legitimate kid of Queen Isabeau of Bavaria, when she was supposedly fooled around with the Duke of Orleans. According to this line of thinking, John had been trained to play the part of the prophesied savior. Just like in a cool fairy tale, she had been given to some peasants in Domremy for adoption and safekeeping, but she had been trained in riding horses, in handling warfare, which would explain how she learned all of these skills so quickly. The idea is that she made up hearing the voices in order to get some superstitious people on board. Now, the reason why this theory makes no sense, uh, well, actually, there are multiple reasons for that. One among them is because Isabeau had disinherited Charles, so she was not on his side, and she clearly would have screamed the truth about someone who, like Joan, was fighting on Charles' side in an effort to expose her. The fact that Joan was also born five years after the Duke of Orleans' death also doesn't help things with this theory. But enough with the things that did not happen. What about the things that did happen after Joan's death? For example, what happened to the people involved in her trial? What happened to her legacy? 
what happened to the Hundred Years' War. Let's start with Joan's legacy. About 20 years after her death, her own mother convinced the Inquisitor General of France to petition the Pope to set up a retrial to possibly overturn her conviction. King Charles also supported this move. And Pope Calixtus III agreed, and by the way, I'm not making it up, the actual name was Calixtus, which is a rather interesting one. In any case, this Pope Calixtus III agreed to let them go ahead. So in 1452, a formal investigation began. By 1456, after a long, long, long process, which included analyzing testimony from over 115 witnesses, the new inquiry took into account how some of the notaries had, had altered the original trial records to make them look less favorable to John. The general consensus of the testimonies was that she believed in her voices to the very end. The retrial found her not guilty and argued that Cochon had intentionally disregarded the law for the sake of eliminating a personal enemy. And as a result of this, John's original condemnation was annulled. Part of the rationale for the nullification revolved around one issue. John had been convicted for a violation of a biblical clothing law. But the problem with the original verdict is that it had not considered all the exceptions to that very law. For example, the allowances made for a woman to wear men's clothes if she were in a dangerous context in which she could be raped. So in light of this, her conviction was thrown out. Of course, that didn't do much in terms of undoing her sentence, since it's kind of difficult to restore back to its former glory a body that has been burned at the stake. But the reputation could enjoy the questionable consolation of being rehabilitated in the eyes of the same church that had condemned how did Cochon take it, we may wonder? Simple answer is that he didn't, since he had been dead for a while by now. Cochon had gone on to have a great and successful career thanks to the English patronage for having done their bidding. But he died probably of heart problems while getting shaved by a barber. And his descendants would denounce his name, possibly in an effort to separate themselves from a man who had become highly unpopular over time. Father Jean d'Estivet, a doctor of the church, one of the guys who had set up the original trial, disappeared and his dead body was found in a gutter. Nicolas Midi, another one of the clerics involved in the trial, and one who had delivered an anti-John sermon on the day of her death, contracted leprosy and died a horrible death. So, John's fans could get some minor satisfaction about this guy's miserable ends. Which, again, it's great and all, but let's go back to the big picture of the Hundred Years' War. After John's death, 
the English seemed to recover their mojo and won a few battles. But this wasn't to last. Technology was changing quickly, and during the various truces that characterized the war, the French built up their artillery to the point that the same castles that had been impossible to take just a few years earlier could now be taken in a matter of days or face destruction. And if it's true the French were winning in terms of technological developments, it's also true that they were scoring some diplomatic victories. For example, when the sister of Philip of Burgundy, and was also the wife of the Duke of Bedford, who was the regent of France for the English king, when she died of plague, the familiar bonds between the two began to break. Bullets had gone out of guns slower than Bedford took to replace his dead wife for a new one. And this got on Philip of Burgundy's nerves. He felt that this was disrespectful to his sister. Bedford himself eventually got sick and died in 1435. And also there were conflicts between Burgundy and England over claims to ownership of Holland. Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and brother of the king, claimed through marriage lands that were claimed by Burgundy as well. And things got so bad that Duke Philip of Burgundy challenged Humphrey to a duel to settle the issue without having to waste the blood of many soldiers. Which, if you have been paying attention by now, you know that's a concept I particularly love. One-on-one with an axe in an arena is much more entertaining and manlier than sending thousands of people to fight in your place. But according to some sources, Humphrey was too much of a wimp for this and instead chose to run back to England. Not entirely sure, you know, these sources are always tricky about what's reliable and what's not, who's saying what because of partisans' reasons, but that's what I've been reading. As this was happening, Yolande was, uh, if you recall, the French king's mother-in-law, made Richemont reconcile with the king. And to celebrate their renewed friendship, they arrested La Tremoille, the counselor who had tirelessly worked against Richemont and John herself, and had exiled him. Well, if we want to tell the truth, his enemies had tried to assassinate this counselor first. But here is a funny story, at least as far as assassinations go. They found out that their daggers weren't long enough to reach a vital organ through all the layers of extra fat that Latremoil had. So his fat defense had frustrated their murdering intentions. That's, you know, next time your doctor yell at you telling you to diet, you can always use a good justification that you are building up layers of fat so that when your enemies come to stab you with daggers, they won't be able to find a vital organ. But in any case, since they couldn't kill him, they settled for exile. And to complete the diplomatic changing of the landscape, Burgundy made peace with the king. The two factions that had been locked in a civil war for more years than most people could remember, they were now unified again together, 
against Burgundy's former allies, the English. The loss of Burgundian support clearly weakened the English position in France. In February 1436, the Bastard of Orléans, Richemont, attacked Paris with 5,000 men, and they starved the city long enough until someone got tired of it and helped the attackers get inside. In 1431, Joan herself had predicted that Charles would enter Paris before seven years were up. And he did in 1437, six years to the day when she had made the promise. Rouen, the place where Joan had been burned and the site of English rule in France, was put under siege and fell to the French in 1449. After that, the English lost a few more engagements until 1453, when the Hundred Years' War was officially over, with the English getting kicked out of France. Many people even argue that the War of the Roses was the logical consequence of the economic crisis created by England's loss during the Hundred Years' War. So, that's a rather big legacy right there. You know, without that we would probably not have Game of Thrones, so that's rather important. In an even weirder turn of events, John was canonized by the Catholic Church in 1920. Tens of thousands came to Rome to attend the ceremony. Now, it's not exactly common that someone who was executed by the Church as a heretic is later regarded as a saint by the very same Church. This was solved by just blaming it all on the English, by sort of glossing over the role that the church had played in this and just blaming it all on the English. But, okay, let's stop dilly-dallying. We're we're coming close to the end of this series. And I should address a key question that I've mostly danced around so far. What are we to make of her? What are we to make of John? What about their voices? And uh, this is a difficult one because I really wish I could give you a simple, conclusive answer. I really wish I could tell you this is uh, what this whole story was truly about. This is uh, how you explain the voices. This is how all that. It would be great to be able to wrap it up with a nice, simple answer. But unfortunately, I happen to be a fan of intellectual honesty. And in the case of John of Arc, intellectual honesty and simple conclusive answers do not mix. Pretty much within seconds, anyone who hears the story begin to form questions about their visions and their ability to hear voices. So not surprisingly, a whole lot of ink has been spilled trying to make sense of it all. Some people understandably think she was crazy. A common theory is that John was heavily schizophrenic. And a few elements seem to fit. Her hearing voices, the delusions of grandeur, the hallucinations. Problem solved then, right? Well, not quite, because her clarity and sharpness during the trial are considered by experts in the field to be unlike those typical of schizophrenia. 
Unlike most heavy schizophrenics, John was uh, super coherent throughout the trial. And for this reason, most psychiatrists are not sold on the schizophrenic diagnosis. Another theory, which by the way doesn't rule it out, I'm just saying most psychiatrists are not sold, so that's as far as we know. Another theory is that John's voices were the product of Meniere's disease. But some authors have spelled out what the problem with this notion is. Here is um, Franz G.S. I think I'm pronouncing the name correctly. I probably am not, but in any case, I forgot how to pronounce this one. Here is the quote. A recent work on the diagnosis of illness in historic personage attributed John's voices and visions to many ear disease, an infection of the inner ear that causes ringing in the ears, minor visual disturbances and dizzy spells. To take this theory seriously, one would need to believe that the symptoms lasted seven years, during which an otherwise intelligent woman persistently interpreted the ringing in her ears as voices with explicit messages, mistook dancing specks for angels, and experienced dizzy spells that made it impossible to stand but did not interfere with riding a horse. Yeah, that seems pretty convincing, so... Meniere's disease is out. Another theory yet is that John was... Uh, I'm trying to find a mild way of putting it, but basically that she was just tripping by having eaten a fungus contaminated with rye, uh, what is known as ergo poisoning. Chemically, this would have been uh, something quite similar to LSD. So let's assume that John was indeed uh, high as a kite on the granddaddy of LSD. Could this be possible? Well, not really. Problem with this theory is that people come down from a high. Unless she kept consuming it nearly every day for all these years, this theory makes no sense. And also, how could she consume it every day and get those visions if all the people around her were unaffected and were presumably eating some of the same food and not having the same visions. So the ergo poisoning also doesn't make sense. Some people suggest a form of brain tumor, despite a complete lack of evidence for this. Others swear by the notion that she suffered from anorexia nervosa. Um, there's a report by a squire that John did not menstruate, that she did not get her period, and also ate very little and was constantly on the go. Now, while this is not totally off the realm of realistic possibilities, there really is no solid proof that this was the case. A further idea is that she may have suffered from epilepsy without seizures, and again, very circumstantial evidence at best. There's also a psychological theory holding that the visions were delusions she had created to feel safer in a difficult world. You know, think about her rough upbringing, the Burgundian raids on her town, all of that. She definitely, her world was unsafe. But the theory could make sense except for the fact that the voices push John to take incredible risks and definitely did not make 
her any safer. So, you know, this one doesn't work for a reason, this other theory doesn't work for another reason. The reality is that despite all these attempts, no interpretation has satisfactorily explained John's visions. Again, author Francis G.S. What is certain is that John's revelations were a tremendously powerful force that enabled her to maintain her composure in the face of skepticism, to argue aggressively with her social betters, to brave danger and wounds, and finally to outface a crowd of male prosecutors threatening her with death by burning. Whatever the source of John's voices and their belief in them, it conferred on her a strength of resolution possessed by few, women or men. So this mystery, the fact that we really have no idea how to know with any degree of certainty what was going on with John, frustrates modern people to no end. In modern times, most people are uncomfortable when they hear of someone speaking with unseen beings. Modern thinking tells us that visions must be hallucinations. So there's a rush to come up with known supernatural explanations for what's going on. But the problem is that, at least in John's case, none of them fully stick or explain her success. Back when John was alive, claims of speaking with unseen beings were taken very differently. Back then, people were much more open to the idea that spirits existed, angels existed, demons existed. So encountering these beings was certainly unusual, but not out of the realm of possibilities. Whereas today, people who make such claims are considered delusional and insane. On the other hand, back then there were more options. Being delusional and crazy, or perhaps deceitful and manipulative, were definitely options on the table. It's not like everyone who claimed to come from God was well received, even in the 1400s. John herself dismissed the claims by a contemporary woman who said she saw a spirit who came to give her advice. So in John's times, it's not like people automatically believed anyone claiming to have contacts with spirits. In order to be believed, you had to be unusually convincing. In John's case, even the English suggested she wasn't crazy and that her powers were real. But in their interpretations, the spirits she saw weren't angels, they were demons. As writer Catherine Ann Porter puts it, all attempts to account rationally for John of Arc's life and no better than those which try to shape it to fit some fantastic theory. She's unique. She's a mystery. And as you read about her and think about her life, you are led up to a threshold beyond which she eludes you. You cannot cross it. So, even today, there are believers who tell you angels were the real deal. In which case, for obvious reasons, this would be an amazing story. Now, non-believers, on the other hand, will tell you 
none of this, there are no angels, there are no spirits, all of this is some sort of hallucination. In which case, this is still an amazing story, because it would mean that her power of belief allowed a teenage girl to pull off something considered absolutely impossible for anyone in her station. So either way, whether there was something indeed supernatural, for lack of a better word, I don't know if that's the correct word, but if there was something like that at play, it's an amazing story. Something like that was not at play, it's still an amazing story. I mean, at 17 years old, she took command of an army that was ready to give up and change it only through the force of her presence and, you know, turning it into a English butt-kicking machine. The English victories in France have been stopped and the tide turned. You know, the, the fact that all of these change all of these enormous changes had taken place chiefly because of just one person, because that was the only thing that had changed, that the French army was the same before and after, and the only change was the entrance on the scene of Joan of Arc. And again, I keep saying it, but I think it's worth emphasizing, because I still cannot come to terms with this. She was an illiterate peasant, but she had been able to frustrate for months the efforts of dozens of professional theologians trying to catch her in contradictions. She was born and raised in a hyper-patriarchal world that was also very class-conscious, so there should have been no chance whatsoever that she could have been able to pull off her vision. She belonged to the wrong gender, wrong class, wrong age, and yes, she did do all that. If told in fiction, this story would be considered unrealistic and too much of a stretch to be plausible. Yeah, right, the tale of the 17-year-old farm girl who suddenly is like, come on, no way. That's stretching anybody's credulity. And yet, she doesn't belong to fiction, she belongs to history. Maybe she was lucky, but it's very hard to argue with the results. She had predicted four main things. She had predicted the lifting of the siege of Orléans, the Dauphin being crowned, Paris returning under the king's rule, and the Duke of Orléans returning from England. Eventually, all of these things happened. She had made a series of impossible claims that then came true. In case you follow MMA... Uh, the following reference may resonate with you. I recall, I remember when Conor McGregor was about to fight Jose Aldo. By the time they fought, Aldo was the undisputed king of his weight division. He had not lost a fight in 10 years, and he had only lost one fight ever in his entire career. He looked literally unstoppable. And in the weeks before the fight, McGregor had said that he would knock out Aldo within seconds. According to McGregor, Aldo would come out aggressively, and he would, uh, and when he would, when he would do that, McGregor himself would step to the side and land a punch that would turn Aldo's lights out. So finally, after endless trash talking for weeks, the fight took place. And when the bell rang, Aldo came out aggressively, 
and 13 seconds later he was hitting the canvas face first, knockdown cold. Some people could say it was a lucky punch, much in the same way as they could say that John had gotten lucky. But the way I see it, it's not lucky if you claim something crazy and semi-impossible and then things work out exactly the way you said. You know, everybody can make, everybody can say they are the greatest, everybody can make some wild and bold prediction, but then there are facts and those rarely back up people who just shoot for the impossible. You know, if you say something completely unbelievable, saying that that's going to happen, well, reality will catch up with you and eventually demonstrate that you are just talking, that you just use big words. In this case, not quite. You know, in, when you look at John's story, according to logic and reason, all their visions are nothing but hallucinations, and she's just crazy. Okay, fine. But according to logic and reason, none of the things she claimed would happen should have happened. And yet they happened anyway. So when it comes to her story, I just throw up my arms. I have no interpretations. I have no conclusions. I have no certainties. But I do very much enjoy this story and I'm okay with having no interpretations, no conclusions and no certainties. Trying to be as intellectually honest as I possibly can be, when looking at this evidence, I just embrace the mystery. Before we wrap things up, big thank you to a few folks, to Justin Maples and Josh Riddle for sponsoring History on Fire on Patreon at the $50 level, and to Susan Moss O'Donnell, Robert, Rob Edinger and Mauro Gatti for sponsoring at the $100 level. Thank you also infinitely to anyone else sponsoring at any level on Patreon. Much, much appreciated. Also, big thank you to anyone who has been using the History on Fire Amazon link. Holidays are coming up. If you're planning on doing Christmas shopping, please consider using the History on Fire Amazon link to buy either many of the books that we bring up during the podcast or really anything else. This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Audible. This is the time of the year when everyone is thinking about gifts. Christmas is coming up. 
So if you think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership, now is the best time to do it since there's a special offer going on. Audible offers an unbeatable selection of audiobooks from bestsellers, motivational stuff, mysteries, thrillers, you name it. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible originals that you cannot hear anywhere else. You'll also enjoy easy audiobook exchanges, rollover credits and an audiobook library that you can keep forever, even if you decide to cancel your membership. So right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month, which is more than half of the regular price. So please go to audible.com forward slash HOF or simply text HOF to 500-500 to get started. Again, that's audible.com forward slash HOF or text HOF to 500-500. If you decide to try Audible, which I think is a wise decision, uh, there's one book that I've been using. I've been using many, many books for this series on Joan of Arc. One that I particularly enjoyed was by Catherine Harrison. It is available right now on Audible, so that's a great place to get started. This episode is also sponsored by Action Heat. Action Heat makes the world's best heated clothing, powered by rechargeable batteries. This includes heated jackets, socks, gloves, hats, you name it. Action Heat clothing is engineered to safely and efficiently deliver heat via heating panels, kind of the same way as uh, the heated seat of a car does. Now you may wonder, I live in LA, what do I know about the cold? Well, not always. I'm currently at the top of a mountain in Big Bear, California, where it's quite cold outside. So while everybody else is freezing out there, I am not. I'm toasty and warm thanks to Action Heat. We got a special deal for our listeners to save 15% off your entire order. Go to actionheat.com forward slash history to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. Again, that's actionheat.com forward slash history or you can just use the coupon code HISTORY at checkout to save 15%. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4hymns.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skincare, sexual wellness for men. Some crazy statistics I was reading. Some 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35, 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED. These guys at 4hims.com try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way. You don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription. Everything can be done online. They basically sell you the generic version, which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the name brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month starting today for just five dollars so while supplies last only five dollars for history on fire listeners this would cost needless to say would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route so go to forhims.com forward slash history and the number five again that's f-o-r-h-i-m-s.com forward slash history and the number five. 
can't beat this deal, so check them out. You guys by now know who else we're sponsored by, since they have been sponsoring us all year long. You have heard it before, History on Fire is sponsored by BlueApron.com. And you've heard it before, not just because of repetition, but because of the insane level, level of enthusiasm that I've been displaying when I talk about them. Because we eat that three times a week, three days a week. We got our, you know, we got the delivery once a week and then we have food lasting for three awesome meals of the week. My only regret is that I don't have more. Maybe I should up my plan and start getting more stuff. In any case, they offer amazing recipes. You can pick how many you want each week, whether two, three or four. High quality ingredients fairly easy to follow um, directions. Usually you can get an amazing meal prepared for really fast. So, what I suggest you do is check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We're also brought to you by letterjoy.co. So that's not .com, it's .co. Letterjoy mails you, or someone you love, one curated historic letter every week. Uh, They are mailed on either fine cotton or parchment paper using a real stamp. So that's an interesting way to make sure that some of history's most fascinating figures now become your pen pals. You give or receive weekly historic letters from figures like Thomas Jefferson, Florence Nightingale, George Patton, you name it. These guys pick from the world's best libraries and archives to find great letters to tell every story. Each letter comes with background information to help you contextualize it, and it's a great way to experience history through the words of those who wrote it. Among some of the recent letters, there are some by Sam Houston and Stephen Austin strategizing on how to beat General Santana of Mexico, one by Justice Samuel Chase trying to plead his innocence during an impeachment trial of a Supreme Court justice, which is a big first in history. There is a listener exclusive for our guys. If you use the code ONFIRE to get a $5 credit toward your first gift or membership, so again, that's the code on fire to get a $5 credit when you visit letterjoy.co. Again, that's letterjoy.co to get started. Also, big thank you to my regular sponsors, Onnit and Datsusara. I just received the big shipments, actually from both of them. Uh, Datsusara, I have a new backpack for my daughter. And the gi, which for those of you who don't roll jiu-jitsu in that martial arts uniform for a friend of mine so I'm getting a bunch of Christmas gifts through Datsusara if you want to check it out at dsgear.com they have some amazing products made with hemp really beautiful stuff for Onnit, well these guys have literally well, maybe not literally but they do, I was about to say they literally have 10,000 products eh, maybe not literally but they do have a lot of stuff from workout equipment, supplements, uh, clothing, special foods, lots and lots of great stuff. So check them out at www.onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's 
onnit.com forward slash history where you'll receive an automatic discount. And also, last but not least, big thank you to nevertapgear.com. They have released a beautiful rush guard design, but the wonderful Savannah M, who is here helping me with editing, producing and releasing the podcast. And also a big thank you to dynastyforge.com for sending us some awesome swords and a whole assortment of blades. Now, thank you so much for staying with me through this whole John of Arc series. We are now done. We are about to head into new territory next month. For now, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.